Welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your host, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story, joining you on the first Saturday in July, July 2nd, 2022. Literally two days away from the Independence Day holiday, which these days is it's it's a mixed bag as to what you're going to celebrate. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, we are still thankful that we are in a nation that the Lord has blessed in many ways, even though it is becoming more and more clear that he has taken his hand of restraint off and is giving this nation over more and more to its depravity. Uh, while that little bit of freedom remains, we will make use of it and praise God for where we are and what we're doing. So thank you, Lord, for uh, allowing us to do this. We are grateful to be with all of you. Thank you uh, once again for tuning in. You guys are really just been making this so enjoyable to do. Um, the more we do this and the more we've interacted with some of you guys, the more we realize how much this apparently this program has, has meant something to you. And uh, that's very humbling to us, and it just uh, drives us to continue to serve the Lord and hopefully be a, of service to you in some capacity. So I just want to remind you, as we always try to do, we are part of the Christian podcast community. Uh, as you now know, that is a number of different podcasts, and we've had several of those where we are interacting with uh, some of our friends, even through this podcast. People like uh, Andy Olson of Echo Zoe, Chris Huff of Matter of Theology, Nathaniel Jolliecki, Tepsa Pornchai of Truth Be Known, and of course, Andrew Rappaport, kind of the mastermind behind all of these uh, this chaos <laughs> of Rappaport, Apologetics Live, and probably about two dozen other programs. Um, that's the most recent count right entry about two dozen no <laughs> i gotta give them a little bit of grief but uh you know we want you to check those programs out you're gonna find something really great on there and uh, we're just we're, we're really blessed to be a part of it i want to also continue to remind you to check out slave to the king.com uh, we are trying to put more and more content on there in terms of articles and uh, trying to make sure that we have something for you that will benefit you guys as often as we are able and uh, is, of course, how you can get in touch with us. It's how you can find our social media links. And it's how you can support the program. All of that is there at that one-stop shop, so to speak, slavetotheking.com. One other thing, uh, and I, I always reluctant to do this because I feel like, feel like I'm tooting my own horn. Uh, but Well, I'll, <laughs> our, I'll, you go I'll, ahead, I'll brother. Interrupt. <laughs> I, will, I will interrupt and say this. Either you share about it, or I'm going to because I had already planned to. And since I've interrupted your intro, I'll say it for you. My brother Chris was blessed to be able to have an article published on G3 Ministries' website. Yeah. So tell him about it, brother. I, I Thank you. I, it was very weird how that went down. I want to thank uh, Virgil and Scott Aniel over at G3. You guys uh, not only willing to allow me to make a submission, but um, reviewed it liked it and posted it for us um i wrote an article for g3 ministries with regard to um what is, what i titled the gospel of sympathy it's a response to an article posted on the gospel coalition and it was an article uh, entitled three ways to sympathize with women considering an abortion it was written by a presbyterian uh, minister by the name of andy jones and i i don't want to give the whole article away i'd like you to go check it out because there's there's a lot of, of there to kind of work through but the point of the article is that while i think 
Mr. Jones really genuinely wants to see women who are considering abortion helped and, and, and to, to be pointed in, the, in a direction that would uh, preserve life, I think, and this is sadly something that I see happening with Gospel Coalition with a, with a slate of articles that has come out since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, the Dobbs decision that happened just the end of last month. And we talked about that on the last episode. If you haven't had a chance, go check that out. But um, it the articles that they've released, I think, are a, a, an attempt to combat the abolitionist movement within Christianity. And we've talked about abolition movement on this program before. In fact, we talked about how that abolition movement can actually become one of those things that you almost become makes an idol because you put it in front of the gospel. And if you go listen to last week's show, that other show is in the show notes. Um, but I think it's a push against the abolitionist mindset where they're trying to basically really cover over any possibility of treating a person, a woman who is seeking abortion as if there's some sort of sin involved. And so there's this overabundance of effort to kind of make it sound like every woman coming in is a woman in crisis who is uh, is in dire need. And if she, if you say anything about sin, you're going to shove her away and that kid, that baby's going to die. And so that was kind of what I, I felt with uh, Mr. Jones's article. And again, I don't think Andy Jones in any way, shape or form was trying to be compromising. I don't think he was trying to uh, misrepresent the word of God. I think he just makes some bad connections. And I think he overemphasizes um, Hebrews 4.15, which talks about our, uh, our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And that's Jesus Christ. And I think he overemphasizes what that sympathy means. And I think he misses the connection to the nature of Christ, who he was, what he did, and why that sympathy matters. Because that sympathy is what connects us to him and connects us to what the work that he's done and then gives us access to the throne of grace where we really can draw upon the strength of God to overcome temptation. And so I, I try to make an argument uh, against his three points, trying to not necessarily dismantle his arguments, but to actually flesh them out even further and, and give, I hope, a more fully orbed argument about the sympathy of Christ and what that actually means. So and 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 hopefully that paints a better picture of how we then address this issue. So again, I, I really want to give a lot of thanks to Virgil Walker and Scott Annual. They they not only were willing to give me an opportunity to to send this article to them, but when they when they reviewed it, they felt it met met G three standards, which is jaw dropping to me. Uh, so <laughs> um, I hope it is helpful to you guys. We will put it in the show notes. But if you just go to g3men.org and look for Gospel of Sympathy, that's the article. And I hope it gives you something that is helpful and helps answer, or how I should say how to respond to this kind of over-gushing emphasis that people like the writers at, at Gospel Coalition are trying to do. I, 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 feel, I fear what's happening within evangelicalism is there's an attempt to just try to turn it into an emotional love fest. Well, that's what evangelicalism does with a lot of things. And I think I, there is a, there's a great danger of not responding in a truly biblical and gospel-centered way, but rather 
in an emotional way that really misses the mark. And so hopefully this will help you in that as well as how do you respond to that kind of push. And so hopefully the article accomplishes that. So Rich, does that, does that cover it well enough? <laughs> yes, brother. You did an excellent job. Thank you. So I just, again, thank you guys for that. Uh, thank you, J3. You guys were wonderful for, for giving me that opportunity. And, uh, Tonight, we're going to kind of continue some of our discussion in, in some of the ways that we've been talking the last few weeks, and uh, I'm going to let Rich kind of you know set the stage for this, but uh, you know, I, haven't, I haven't asked a question, and this, this would not be a Voice of Reason radio uh, episode if I didn't. Rich, how are you doing this week? Better than I deserve, Amen. brother, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate G3 and, and everyone there allowing you to have a voice on their website and their blog and post that we did not plan this ahead of time so i'm i'm basically telling you put the link to the g3 article <laughs> in our show notes that way the listeners will not have to go hunt and look for it put it in our show notes even though we had not planned this or discussed it i'm telling you now put it in our show notes and i encourage everyone if you're listening to this episode go read that article because my brother did an absolutely wonderful job in writing it out. And I was blessed to be able to read it while it was still in its planning stage. And while actually well before anybody at G3 even knew that it was written, I had the blessing to be able to read it because Chris and I actually share things like this with one another and ask each other's opinions on, <laughs> on issues and writings and whatnot. So, um, but I knew that I, when, when he sent me the draft of that, I knew it was going to be something special. Um, honestly, it had not crossed my mind to send it to G3. But No, that was another brother that suggested well that. <laughs> there was another brother that suggested yeah, that, was, and I think he, had to, he, he almost had to cattle prod me to do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, put it in the show notes. But, um, yes, sir. Actually, some, something you said somewhat leads <laughs> in to tonight's discussion. And tonight, we're actually discussing the debate about secondary issues as it pertains to Scripture. And emotionalism is one of those side effects of what we're going to discuss, that emotional love fest type thing you were talking about. And it's one, well, you know, there are many reasons why the professing church in America has gone the direction it has, but I honestly think what we're going to discuss tonight is one of the gateways that has mm -hmm. led to it um and in preparing for tonight's episode i actually came across something today just literally just a couple hours before we were going to record that actually applies to this actually there's a couple of things one of them was from was a post by justin peters ministries and if you're not familiar with justin peters ministries you need to go check them out online and, and read about the work that Justin Peter's doing and his discernment ministry and what his ministry's about. Um, I, I seriously doubt anyone that's actually listening to this show is not familiar with Justin Peter's, but in the event someone happens to accidentally come across this and listen to it, <laughs> go check out Justin. But <clears throat> in today's post, he had wrote, Get used to a different Jesus, and it was written by Rick Becker and Justin Peters was quoting what this gentleman had wrote. Get used to different, in quotes, the words of Jesus, in quote, in season. One of the chosen when he called Matthew as a disciple. 
These words, not found in the biblical narrative, have become a slogan for the series. Unfortunately, different is a description of the Jesus that Dallas Jenkins, the creator and director of The Chosen Advocates, a different Jesus that we will have to get used to in a negative sense. And any time the word different was used, it was in quotations. Mm -hmm. And they were quoting 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. This other or different Jesus will be a popular Jesus, an ecumenical Jesus that brings various faith traditions together, and that's in quotes. An inclusive Jesus that accepts all religions, a Jesus that can be defined in the broadest terms possible, a Jesus that accepts different understandings of his nature, a Jesus that has come to bring peace in this world and harmony among different religions. Essential doctrines will be ignored or viewed as differences and set aside as various cults, false religions, and the majority of the visible church are deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist. They'll claim that they love the same Jesus, which is a different Jesus. Someone playing a role in this universal and syncretic deception is Dallas Jenkins, and it's no small part given the popularity of his series. Aside from the influential series, what is often overlooked is something just as influential, the words of Dallas Jenkins, I apologize, I'm still suffering from side effects from last month, so I'm stammering a bit here. But in essence, what he's saying is, in today's world, many people will profess to claim Jesus of the Bible. They will even affirm the deity of Christ in what we know to be the foundation of biblical theology, but yet will deny him when it comes to all these other issues. And we're starting to see that more and more and more in the world today. Another brother that we both know very well that we've had on this show in the past wrote something today that if I can get my fingers to work, I'll pull it up and read it because it has applications to everything that we're going to discuss tonight. Um, where what Justin Peters Ministries posted, that is one of the side effects we're seeing when it comes to these quote-unquote differences. But Alan Nelson wrote, there's an unprecedented crisis in America when it comes to pastors of conservative evangelical churches. I'm referring to churches that affirm on paper the inerrancy and authority of the Bible. I will break this down into five categories. Number one, converted men pastoring who are not gifted to pastor. Because of crisis of Christian manhood, there are some men pastoring churches that are not gifted to preach. Good men, godly men, but not elders in terms of ability to teach. This is the least of our issues, in my opinion. Number two, pastors who believe they are CEOs. Some of these men may be converted, but they are way off on the role of pastor. They don't shepherd the flock. They try to run boards and leaders who then do the shepherding. They vision cast and appear on stage, but don't pastor. Number three, politically and morally conservative pastors who are unconverted. Men who may be right on several things, but don't have a regenerate heart. Number four, men and women who don't know what the office of pastor is. Men and women who think women can be pastors as long as it's not senior pastor or are, are, or are okay with category two or three above. Number five, biblically qualified, God-fearing, gospel-preaching, Christ-honoring, faithful men who wind up being considered 
fringe or extreme by Big Eva and Big Eva followers, meaning basically if you adhere to biblical Christianity, uh, you're labeled extreme or on the fringe by Big mm-hmm. Eva. And he went on to write, I can't give you all the reasons for this crisis, but some root issues are fear of man, feminism, carelessness with God's word, love of the world, etc. These have been sh- these have been sown over decades, and the fruit is now ripe. The result has been that we have treated the pastoral office, pulpit ministry, preaching, and evangelism flippantly. We've introduced man-made ideas and worldly wisdom to these areas, and any attempt to restore godly manliness to the pastorate is met with many frowns. And Mr. Winsome and Miss Nuance are always waiting to pounce on and pummel any clear teachings on this matter. But but let me conclude loud and clear. Until holy, bold, courageous, and godly men are returned to the pulpits, and only these men, and until these type of men are desired to be heard from and honored and upheld as the only way to lead and pastor and preach, evangelicalism will continue to suffer and decline. In America, local local churches will suffer, evangelism will suffer, missions will suffer, but Christ's kingdom will endure in advance. And I am determined to seek the first. I hope you will join me. I rather, I rather big evil repent, but if it persists in two to four, especially better to pass away. Brother Allen is beyond correct in mm-hmm. his assessment. Indeed. My opinion, besides wanting to, in order to cater to the world, in order to cater to the cultural whims and open the doors of the church and bring them in, Instead of standing boldly on the Word of God and all of Scripture, which is God-breathed, they have started, and this is nothing new, um, when men and seminaries start teaching that anything written in the Word of God can be considered secondary Mm -hmm. or issues of compromise, this is the result. This is how it starts. Go ahead. No, I'm just agreeing with you. I'm saying absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is how it starts. It, it it doesn't just happen overnight. And the issue, uh, I'll give a small, brief history lesson. The issue of primary, secondary, and tertiary issues arose after the Reformation. Um, I'm not going to go long into this, but the, the short version of it is that after the Reformation, some were still trying to embrace Roman Catholicism, saying that even though they practice worship differently, they still believe in the same Jesus as in the Bible. And out of that conversation arose men on both sides of the issue that started to define primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. On one side, they were doing it trying to show that the Roman Catholics embraced the same Christ of the Bible. The Reformers and the Protestants did that to show that they did not embrace and teach and believe in the same Christ of the Bible. That's how the issue of primary, secondary came up. It was a result of the Reformation, and the Protestants were fighting tooth and nail to keep those outside of the Roman Catholic Church to show them and explain to them why and how the Roman Catholic Church were teaching a different Jesus and teaching a different means of salvation, because we all know the Catholics teach 
in order to be saved, you've got to do works. And in order to keep your salvation, you've yeah. got to continue to do those works. That's the basis, their basic difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. But since then, over the course of, what, 500 years, that whole issue started to change as to what is and what is not primary and secondary. Oddly enough, in 1845, when the Southern Baptist Convention was formed in Augusta, Georgia, the issue of women, women preaching was not addressed because everyone knew and believed that the Word of God itself, that the Bible was the actual Word of God and was to be commanded. Whether you want to admit this or not, the issue of women preaching did not start entering the Protestant mainline Protestant denominations until the early 1900s at the suffrage movement. Prior to World War I, mainline Protestant denominations fought tooth and nail against women, women being able to be elected to political offices, fought against women serving in the role of police officers and in the military. Granted, you know, women being allowed to vote is a separate issue, but the point I'm making is it was not a new revelation that the Protestant denominations received from God in regards to what is and what is not primary and secondary in Scripture, but they started to bend to the whims of the culture. It went from and John Gill's exposition on these passages from Second Timothy and Titus lay it out plainly. And the Reformers and all the Protestant denominations adhere to this prior to 1900 and prior to around 1913, 1914, and prior to World War I. When World War I happened, a lot of people attribute the fall of American evangelicalism to World War II. Actually, it began in World War I. Um, Paul Washer had a very good sermon on that, but I will disagree with him in one aspect, that it was not World War II that led to this, but World War I. When the suffrage movement started, World War I had not occurred. Once that started and America was involved with it and American factories needed workers, they started to cave on the view of women's roles in society. At that point in time, somewhere in the next decade or so, the church gave in and said, okay, women can do all of these things, but when it comes to church, these passages only apply to church, and women cannot serve as a pastor in leadership roles in the church, but it's okay for them to do so in the rest of society. Whether you want to hear it or not, when it comes to the issue, when Paul stated women are not to preach or teach or exercise authority over a man, it was not confined to the fellowship within a church. It was not confined to a church meeting, but he was meant that that was to be applied into all aspects of life. Yes, I know you're going to send me hate mail, but <laughs> I'm over it already. But this is the truth. You do not want to hear it. But since the 1930s up until now, generation after generation after generation have been taught and told women and girls can do anything that men can. A girl can do anything that a boy can. Over time, that has where the church compromised on the meaning of that verse and compromised and said, okay, that just applies to the church. Now, 
it has gotten from that point to the point we see today to where we have well-known figures within the Southern Baptist Convention saying, well, that only just applies to lead pastors, which mm-hmm. is a position and title and role nowhere mentioned in Scripture, which brings us to the topic of tonight's show. And I'll start it off with somewhat of a question. When it comes to the role of women pastors, you hear you know, people defending it, and you hear people against it, meaning that either you're defending Scripture and what it says and what it means, or you're trying to label the role of pastors and women pastoring as a secondary issue. The only reason they want to make it a secondary issue and try to claim that it's less important than anything else in Scripture is because they're trying to once again cater to the whims of culture because they're culture club Christians, they're not biblical Christians. Mm-hmm. And once once people start trying to decide themselves and they start trying to make themselves judge over God's Word, and they are gods themselves, or try to be, in determining what is and what is not Scripture, once you open that doorway and start classifying the words of God as primary and secondary, and I'm not talking about aspects of theology. I'm talking about biblical doctrine, what is actually written on the pages of the Bible, which is the Word of God. One of the arguments that they use is, well, when Paul wrote that, he was just stating an opinion. It was just his thoughts. It was just his way of doing things. Um, And I've heard this, well, if Paul didn't think that he was actually writing the Word of God, it really doesn't matter. We shouldn't consider it as the Word of God, but just a suggestion. This is some of the things that we will discuss. Did Paul know that what he was writing was going to be in Scripture? Well, the answer is it really doesn't matter whether he knew it was going to be included in Scripture or not, but he did know that what he was writing was actually commands from mm-hmm. Christ to be given to the church because, because Paul had been given that authority himself by Jesus Christ himself. Brother, would you like to chime in? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm totally in agreement with everything you've said so far. I think one thing to just to keep in mind as we're talking about doctrine, there's an article from 2017 on Ligonier that talks about what is sound doctrine. And the, the writer in this, Scott Swain, says, What is doctrine? In a basic sense, doctrine is, doctrine is any sort of teaching. The Bible, for example, talks about the teachings of men, Mark 7, 7 through 8, the teachings of demons, 1 Timothy 4, 1, Revelation 2, 24, and the teachings of God, John 6, 45, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, 1 John 2, 27. Here we are concerned with divine teaching, the teaching of God. According to one definition, teach, doctrine is teaching from God, about God, that directs us to the glory of God. This definition provides a helpful anatomy of sound doctrine, identifying doctrine's source, object, and ultimate end. We will consider these three elements of sound doctrine. And he does a good job of explaining what we really, you know, what is what is the source of our doctrine, what is our object, in other words, what are we doing it for, and um, what is its end. And ultimately, thus our course, our source is Scripture. The object is the glory of God, is to direct ourselves to the glory of God. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's it promotes a number of ends, as he points out here. But the whole point is that when we're talking about doctrine, and, and Rich, you, you made a point about primary and secondary, 
we we try to identify those things that are absolute essentials of the faith that it that their denial of them for example like if you denied Christ's deity and yet you said if I believe in Jesus if you flat deny his deity yet you claim to be a Christian and you believe in Jesus you you, you don't have Jesus because Christ revealed that he was divine and if you're not believing in a Jesus that is divine then you're believing in a false Christ so you cannot be saved if if you, if you deny the very you know Christ you claim has saved you and we've talked about before on the show by the way there are places where you can be ignorant in your initial walk and be wrong but as you are su supposed to be growing in the faith you these things should become more uh you should become more aware of them and you should be getting growing in your understanding and when revealed to you you should be able to say oh my goodness i've, I've had this wrong for so long i'm going to change uh where an ongoing denial and refusal would indicate there's no regeneration um karm.org has a great doctrines table that talks about things like primary and secondary essentials primary and secondary non-essentials uh, and gives examples of them uh, we'll put both the Ligonier and the the uh, Karm links in our show notes. Please check them out. I think you're going to learn a lot. But the thing is, is that just because something falls within the realm of, say, a secondary, doesn't mean it's un it's unimportant. And I think, Rich, this is one of the things we need to talk about because when we talk about the SBC and women pastors, for example, Rick Warren, and uh, shock of shocks, I wrote another article. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote an article about his love letter to the SBC where he says, are we going to keep bickering about secondary issues or are we going to keep the main thing the main thing? And that's one of the things that he's he's talking about. Saddleback was kind of is kind of facing is it potentially on the chopping block for openly defying the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 which says that the office of pastor is reserved to men. And he's he's flagrantly disobeyed that he, he, he publicly ordained three women in in direct violation of that and he's saying that's bickering over secondary doctrines well this is going to be funny considering i wrote a response to a tgc article and then the article itself is written by gavin ortland back in 2017 so gavin is one of those kind of yeah you know, he and his uh his father kind of mixed bag but he says something in an article titled When Should Doctrine Divide? And I think he does a great job here talking about, at least in this initial portion, I'll let you read the rest of it and decide uh, the rest of it, but he's talking about um, the issues of, of doctrinal minimalism and doctrinal separatism. And when he talks about doctrine, doctrinal minimalism, I, he talks about these, uh, these areas of doctrine, and he says... Um, I, sus I sometimes suspect what people really mean when they make this distinction. It's something like, it's, it's a secondary issue, therefore it doesn't really matter. And Rich, that's exactly what we heard coming out of Rick Warren. This is a secondary issue, why are we bickering about it? But I like what he says in this. He says that uh, doctrines can be non-essential and yet still important. And different doctrines can have different kinds of importance. And he breaks down to how he sees uh, this kind of fourfold way that doctrine can break out. But he gives, in this doctrinal minimalism uh, article, he, he makes some, some points. 
he says that we can't just equate, he says there are several reasons why we should not equate secondary with indifferent. In other words, you can't just say, well, it's a secondary doctrine, so we don't have to, it, we can be indifferent about it. It doesn't matter. He says there's four reasons why we should not do that. And the first is, is that a high view of scripture calls us to treasure all that God has said. In other words, when we look at all of his commands, when we look at secondary, primary, and tertiary, etc., we are viewing this as, this is all of God's word. We, we should pour over this. We should desire it. We, we should want to live according to it. It, uh, another reason is that it respects uh, church history and develop, uh, respects what our predecessors fought over. That's true. Uh, the fourth reason is all truth shapes how we think and live in uh, subtle but important ways. This is one of the things that I try to make a point in, in my article, and I'll put this one in the show notes as well. Um, when we are called to these understand these doctrines, for example, can women hold the pa- position of pastor or an authority in the church? We are called to be obedient, all right? It's how we think about God and how we how we think about his church and how that affects how we live. And so, you know, um, that all of that truth, whether it's primary, secondary, or whatever, it affects how we think and how we live. And you can see when you treat a, 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 a doctrine as secondary, for, therefore not really important, you see what's happening with the SBC. You see Rick Warren. You see the pragmatism. The third, third one was one that I really appreciated that Gavin Ortland put in this article. Many secondary doctrines are vitally related to the gospel. And he says specifically, some doctrines picture the gospel, some protect it, some logically flow out of it or into it. Rare is a doctrine that can be her- hermetically sealed off from the rest of Christian faith. Thus, downplaying secondary doctrines can leave primary ones blander, quieter, or more vulnerable. So this idea that we can say it's a secondary issue, we don't need to bicker over it, is absolutely unequivocally false. It is. It, there's nothing about what people like Rick Warren or others say that. <clears throat> well, we can we can we can make this moot. It's not a big deal. We can we can uh, we can be in disagreement. Well, okay. I, what I try to say in my in the article on Rick Warren is there are some things where we can have disagreement. Now, um, we've you know. I'm probably more identified, I'm not per se Baptist, but my, my church and its ecclesiology and, and its theology and stuff probably aligns closer to, say, Reformed Baptist. I've got friends who are Presbyterian. We're going to differ on the issue of baptism. Okay, I, Presbyterians believe in paedo-baptism. By the way, they also believe that if someone comes to faith in the Presbyterian church, they get baptized, adult or not. Okay, so um, they believe in credo-baptism, believer's baptism, as much as they believe in paedo-baptism. I don't believe in paedo-baptism. I don't believe you baptize your babies. I believe if you, you wait till someone makes a profession of faith and that, that profession shows fruit and you get them baptized. Um, can I partner with a Presbyterian? Of course. Okay, this is not an issue of disobedience. It's not an issue of uh, whether or not we're rejecting the Word of God. It's how we understand and apply that. It'd be different if I was, you know, if someone tried to say, well, there are differences on baptism, and I don't believe baptism is an, that you really need to do that, so you can be a Christian and not be baptized. Okay, back up. Hold on. What does the scripture say? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be baptized. If a person comes to you and says, well, baptism is not a salvation issue, 
Well, okay, there are some people that really do think it is a salvation issue. That's a whole different episode. Um, but if they try to say, well, it's not, a, it's not a, it's not a primary issue. It's not salvific, so it doesn't matter if you get baptized or not. Back the truck up. That's an obedience issue. Okay, so now there's a difference between partnering and and being in fellowship with brethren that we disagree on the the how baptism is applied. But when you've got someone who says you don't need to do it at all and actually says, don't bother, that's an issue of disobedience. With Rick Warren and with people within the the, uh, SBC, Rich, that you were talking about who say, for example, well, women can be pastors. No, we might talk about, we might have differences on, say, the position of deacon, the roles they can serve in the church, etc. And we talk how that ecclesiology works and what, you know, how that, uh, what the, the build out of a church is going to look like and where women's roles fit. We might have differences on this, what we want to call a secondary issue, but go to Rick Warren and say, this is a secondary issue. So we can just bat, we can just make women pastors. No, now you're talking full on disobedience. This isn't, this isn't a secondary issue at this point. This is an issue of sin because you are disobeying a clear directive from God and his word. And so that's what I, I love. I, I feel weird about you know, Gavin Ortland. He's a mixed bag in some cases, especially how in recent uh, months and stuff, he's very much sounded kind of in that playing in the woke play fields and stuff. And I always feel weird about, uh, you know, TGC is one of those websites where something can be good and something can be bad. So it's a mixed bag. But in this instance, I think Gavin makes a very, very good argument about the doctrinal minimalism that we cannot treat it as non-essential. So, you know, going back to Ligonier, doctrine is important. This is God's word to us. And it, 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 it comes from the word. It impacts how we view God. It's the ends that it causes us and how we live and how we worship the Lord. That's all important. And there are issues of essential, uh, you know, uh, not essentials and non-essentials. And I think the CARM article has great information on that. That will be very helpful. But ultimately, this boils down to, Rich, when we're talking about essentials and non-essentials, uh, primary and secondary, these are still commands. These are still God's word to us about how we need to worship, how we come to God, what were the things that we do, how we be obedient to him, how we bring glory to him. And for anyone, especially a person like Rick Warren, to sit there and say, are we going to bicker over this? You're darn right we're going to bicker over it because you're being disobedient and that was not what we are called to. So, before we went further, I just I did want to put that in there because we've got to make sure people understand secondary does not mean unimportant. There are no unimportant doctrines in Scripture. But uh, let me give that back to you, by the way. No. Well, and that's <clears throat> that's the thing. In today's culture, anything that they need to do to appease the culture, they label it as secondary mm-hmm. because the American evangelical church today is watered down. Excuse me. And once they crack that door open, when they're saying secondary, it's not in the biblical sense and biblical terms that were laid out, like in that Mm -hmm. table. What they're actually saying is this is not as important Mm -hmm. or this is not important at all. And that's the thing once, especially in today's modern church culture, they may use 
historic terminology, but they're applying it completely different mm -hmm. than what was the way it was used, say, four or five hundred years ago. But like with Rick Warren and the issue of women preachers and so many churches we see today trying to defend abortion and so many trying to defend homosexuality and all these other worldly issues, what they need to do is remember that what is written and breathed by God is, re if anything, is regarded less important because we want it to be less important. They're actually trying to strip the power of Christ from the authority of Scripture. And we need to remember nothing in the Bible is actually, in my opinion, nothing in the Bible is actually secondary because it is the Word of God. That's like saying, okay, certain attributes of God are secondary compared to these primary attributes of God. If it is God-breathed, if it is commanded by God, it's all primary when it comes to the realm of importance. And you made a good point that it's still a matter of obedience. Christ said, if you love me, obey all that I've taught, obey all my commandments. Christ clearly states time and time again that to love him means to deny yourself. That also means denying your wants and your opinions and your desire to be applauded by man in the mm -hmm. world. You've got to lay that all down to truly follow him, meaning to completely surrender to him. Because in the book of Acts, Peter plainly states, this Jesus God made both Lord and Christ. Mm -hmm. The world today, well, the professing church today, by, by and large, especially when you get into these different issues, they want Jesus as Savior, but they do not want to completely surrender to him as Lord. Mm -hmm. It's like, say, World War II with the Nazis. When Germany surrendered, they didn't just say, okay, I surrender and turn around and went back to doing what they wanted to do. No, when they surrendered, they handed over all their weapons. They submitted to the authority of the new government put in place. When you surrender to Christ, you're surrendering everything to him, all of your life, all of your emotions, all of your feelings, all of your wants, all of your thoughts. Because if you're truly transformed by Christ and not just made a decision to follow Christ, but if you're truly transformed by Christ, you will live a life of continually being transformed over into the image of Christ. That is what progressive sanctification is all about. Yeah. It's not a matter of saying, okay, I believe Christ is my Savior. I made a decision to follow him and then go on off and live your life the same way you were prior to that quote-unquote decision. And a sister on, online the other day pointed that out, and it's very, very good that there's a difference between making a decision for Christ and being transformed by mm -hmm. Christ. And that is critically important because even some people we might would consider brothers and sisters are being deceived by the doctrines of the day. They're being given over to this age of Antichrist, to this age of clouded judgment and clouded views because, you know, there's so much thrown at us left and right nowadays, but we've got to go back and remember if the Word of God is infallible and in, in, inerrant, all of it is, not just what we pick and choose. And I know we've talked about before when it comes to um, taking verses out of context and picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like and say, okay, this is for me, but this don't apply. 
it doesn't work that way. If you are in Christ, you've got to completely surrender to all of God's mm-hmm. Word, whether you like it or not. It, Christ doesn't command you to like it. He commands you to obey it. Mm-hmm. And as you are transformed more into the image of Christ, you will begin to understand and love what Christ loves more and more and more. And I'm not talking about someone that's newly converted, but in a situation of some of these pastors that have supposedly been leading a church for decades, they should know better. Yeah. I mean, they should absolutely know better because there's a distinctive between a new convert and someone that's been a professing Christian and a pastor for four decades. The one that's been doing this for four decades should know better. They should know what they're doing, and there should be no excuse for them falling to these quote-unquote secondary, less important issues. Yeah. Now, I will agree to this. When it comes to theology, there are some aspects of theology that we can consider secondary. And there are some aspects within some portions of theology we might consider secondary. And you mentioned one when it comes to the mode of baptism, Mm -hmm. whether it's being sprinkled or dunked, or whether it's baptizing babies or not. Those issues would truly be secondary or tertiary. You know, and people talk about, well, we we can't have division in the church. Well, the division that Paul talked about in the church had absolutely nothing to do with division over biblical doctrine. In fact, he said, if you're not adhering and obeying biblical doctrine, you're to be cast out of the church. You don't hear that today at all. Now, I know in that chart, I remember reading over that, but... You know, when it comes to like mode of baptism, and I'm sorry, I'll get hate mail for this, but when it comes to eschatology, end times, that would be secondary. Mm-hmm. Form of church government, you know, whether we're led by elders or deacons and, and those types of things. But if it's written in black and white in the Word of God, we have to consider it primary because it is the Word of God. Now, before, I know we're absolutely we're running behind schedule what we had <laughs> planned tonight, but it's, I do want to take time and cover what the Bible actually says and what was actually dictated by Paul. Mm-hmm. And we need to ask the question, was Paul's epistles actually in the authority of Christ? Yeah. Or was it just his opinion? Because that's the argument I hear. Yeah. When it comes to these people that want to make things such as women pastors, their argument is, well, that was just Paul's opinion. That's not actually Scripture. My first response is, when it comes to what Paul wrote, or what John wrote, or Mark wrote, or Luke wrote, or any of the other writers in the New Testament wrote, if we try to take and pick and choose what we will and will not obey, we're making ourselves God over the scriptures um would you like to add something brother yeah and 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 we absolutely need to get into that i I just want to make an observation when it comes to this these issues where we are watching pastors do this you you made an excellent point if you're a pastor whether you've been over the church for a couple of years or you've been you know to quote rick warren for you know all these many many well i won't say quit quote but paraphrase many many years in the same church you presumably have been 
brought up and taught in the Word, and you understand the the, the heavy weight of conveying the Word of God to the people. That should be the case. The problem we're seeing is the the idol of pragmatism, and it's it's invaded seminaries, it's invaded Bible colleges, it's invaded pastors' schools, it's invaded uh, whole denominations, and, and all, all of evangelicalism. And it, pragmatism says, whatever works. You know, the, the end result is what matters. We get people saved. We get people to make a decision. We get people to walk the aisle or get baptized. And so you can have a great, uh, you know, Todd Friel used to call it, I don't know if he still does, but he used to call it um, file cabinet theology. You have in your file cabinet, here's what we believe. That's what we're seeing in the SBC right now. When Chris Huff and I were talking about uh, the, the, the annual meeting, and I think we refer, you know, I referenced one of the individuals post-meeting that talked about there is no drift, and here's why. We affirm all these things. Well, that's your file cabinet theology. We affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. We affirm uh, you know, th uh, this, uh, uh, that, and the other thing. That's not the issue. The issue isn't whether you affirm the existence of sound doctrine. You affirm it. Great. What is the practice? Are you practicing what you claim to believe? And if, you're, if your orthopraxy doesn't meet your orthodoxy, then you have succumbed to something somewhere in the middle, and that's usually pragmatism. And that's what happens when we hear people like, you know, whether it's uh, uh, the the you know, uh, not preaching repentance. So repentance just means change of mind. So we just got to get them to change their minds or whether it's, um, you know, sinner's prayer. Well, it's, there's nothing in scripture that says we can't. So we let's lead them that way. They'll feel more comfortable or it's, you know, uh, compromising and bringing in worldly ideologies such as CRT, intersectionality, etc. Or it's compromising and bringing in worldly entertainment because that's, what's going to bring the unchurched in. None of these things are covered by sound doctrine. They're pragmatism. They're not, you know, Scripture actually tells us. I know that some of our listeners may be may not be fully, uh, you know, regulative principle, but I think most of us sort of agree that Scripture tells us that there, God wants us to approach Him a certain way. You can't go through the first five books of the Bible. You can't go through things like Leviticus and not recognize God has a prescribed way that we're to come to Him. And so this anything goes mentality, it, it, I don't care what your file cabinet theology is. What is your practice? What is your, what is your pragmatic practice? If that's where you're headed with it, you don't believe your theology. It's just what you put, put up on the bulletin board to say you, you are biblical. And that's what we see with people like Rick Warren. You know, I remember when John Piper had him at his conference, everybody lost their minds because like, John, what are you doing? And Piper was impressed by it because he was reading through Jonathan Edwards that year. And it's like, how how can he, how can Rick Warren, of all people, he, there must be something better about him. Rick Warren's not stupid. Rick Warren's an intelligent individual. He, Rick Warren is also a CEO salesperson. Okay. He knows how to market himself. So he'll read Jonathan Edwards, but it doesn't mean that he's ascribing to what Edwards taught. Okay. And, you know, so when you have someone who has the impressive library and the knowledge, great. Quote to me the Puritans all day long. Are you living that way? Are you practicing 
what the scriptures say? If you don't, I don't care what your knowledge base is. What are you practicing? And that is, you know, it, you can have the knowledge base, but if it's just head knowledge and no practice, then it's useless. It just makes you easy to, you know, to, uh, to manipulate people as we see people like Rick Warren doing with the SBC. So when we're dealing with this, well, it's not important because it's a secondary issue. What you're actually hearing is the battle cry of the pragmatist saying, those doctrines don't have application in my life. Those doctrines are just head knowledge. I know them. I affirm them. I don't care about them. And that's where I think that is such a big problem. And Rich, this is why, when is what you're getting into with uh, with Paul, this is one of the things we often hear because of the the uh, the progressive onslaught. They usually attack Paul vociferously because they they you know Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament and much of the commands and theology and doctrine that we draw about the nature of the church and how we are to practice and, and how we're to live and 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 and, uh, and to speak and to worship come from Paul. So much of it does. So when you you when you want to carve out an exception, you're going to start compromising somewhere. And as, as you're about to get into this issue of, well, did Paul speak with biblical authority? Was he speaking... Uh, doctrine was he speaking God's word or was it maybe an opinion or something? And I think I know that's what you want to get into, but I just wanted to point that out. The reason we see so much, well, it's just secondary, so it doesn't matter, boils down to here's my pragmatic approach, so I need to find a way to shut you up, which is exactly what Rick Warren did in his love letter to the church. Are we going to keep bickering? Or are we going to keep the main thing the main thing? That's the battle cry of the pragmatist. It's a secondary issue, so be quiet. So anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, interestingly enough, he, he tried to point out the main thing is the main thing. I thought the Word of God was the main thing. Amen. And yet he's trying to rip out certain passages and pages and toss it to the side and say, well, that's not as important. We can put that over here and just use it as a bookmark for what we really like. Yeah. But of all places... I came across this, and I guess it just proves even a, a broken clock can be right once or twice a day. But it's actually from Christianity.com. And I won't read through all of this. Um, Chris, I'll send you the links so you can put it in the show notes. But it goes on and addresses, did Paul believe his letters to be divinely authoritative? And it goes on to say, no one can prove for certain that Paul knew his letters to the early churches were scriptural in nature. However... A review of Paul's writings shows that Paul believed that Jesus had granted him divine authority to impart the Word of God. In addition, the Apostle Peter explicitly includes Paul's writings when he speaks of scriptural text. Paul refers to his own writings as a command of the Lord. Paul himself declared the divine authority of his writings to the Christian communities he addressed. In particular, Paul tells the Christians of Corinth, that if any of them believes himself to be a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, he should testify that Paul's writings is the Lord's command, 1 Corinthians 14.37. This passage demonstrates Paul's belief that he was commissioned by Jesus to speak with his authority when instructing the Christian communities on doctrine and moral living. Moreover, Paul warned that any Corinthian who failed to acknowledge that Paul's words were the Lord's commands 
would themselves be ignored by the remaining Christian community. 1 Corinthians 14, 38. This further illustrates Paul's belief in the divinely authoritative nature of his writings. Paul also emphasized the inspired nature of his words in his first letter to the Thessalonians. There, Paul recounts how the Thessalonians received the word of God from Paul and his companions, and that the Thessalonians accepted their preaching not as words spoken by mere humans, but as words spoken by God himself, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Therefore, if we consider that Paul refers to his verbal teachings as the word of God, it can only make sense to believe that Paul also considered his written teachings to be divinely inspired as well. Importantly, Paul identified, identifies in his letters when he's stating his own opinion versus that, of, versus that of the Lord's. And Chris and I had a discussion about that in pre-show. I'm not going to go into all of that, but some people try to say, well, see there, Paul was just stating his opinion. But the point of that, like in 1 Corinthians 7.25, is the fact that even if he was stating his opinion, it was still with Paul's authority given to him by Christ. But another thing I really wanted to point out was that Apostle Peter regarded Paul's writings as Scripture. Peter was one of the Peter was one of Jesus's twelve apostles. Of the apostles, Peter is the apostle who correctly identified Jesus as the Son of God, to whom the kings of when when he was speaking to Jesus, and Jesus said about giving him the keys to the kingdom, and the apostle whom Jesus commissioned to feed his sheep. Thus, as I witness to Jesus' ministry, as well as the apostle singled out to receive Christ's special blessings and instructions, Peter would have been keenly aware of Jesus' teachings. With knowledge of the Savior's teachings in mind, Peter arguably regarded Paul's letters as inspired scripture when he declared that Paul wrote with the wisdom that God gave him, 2 Peter 3.15. In addition, Peter identified Paul's writings as divinely authoritative when he stated that Paul's letters include passages that are hard to understand and which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, 2 Peter 3.16. So not only did Paul speak with the authority given to him by Jesus Christ and issue commands in how to conduct church and what the means of that conduct looked like as it applied to how to treat one another, how husbands were to treat their wives, how wives were to view their husbands, how we are to love one another. When these people like Rick Warren and so many others try to regate portions of Scripture and say, well, they're not as important but yet they emphasize other teachings by Paul, and you made a good point, brother. Paul is the only one they seem to ever go after and attack mm -hmm. the authority that he wrote these epistles in, not realizing that other apostles, other writers in the New Testament also acknowledged Paul's writings as authoritative in scriptures, just like that with Peter. But there's no clause in what Peter wrote that said, except when he wrote about this, this, or this. Mm -hmm. But they tried to attack Paul's writings 
and teachings when it comes to, say, women preaching, but yet they're willing to abide by and promote and teach Paul's others, other writings when it comes to love one another mm-hmm. and, and these other things. So my question is, what divine authority have they been given by God to pick and choose what they will and will not obey and what is and what is not actually the Word of God? It all comes down to if they believe the Bible is truly God-breathed, that all of Scripture is inspired by God, is the Word of God, and is to be obeyed, what gives them the right to pick and choose portions that are supposedly secondary or less important than others? Yeah. But I wanted to backtrack for just a quick minute, and I'll hand the rest of this over to you. At Blue Letter Bible, they, they restate a lot of the same things that this Christianity article did. Um, but I wanted to actually read a few of the, the verses so that our listeners could understand. Paul believed his messages to be in, to be divine. The first thing that must be noticed is that Paul believed his message to be divine. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 14.37, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He wrote to the to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul spoke of my gospel. Paul spoke of my gospel. He said the preaching of Jesus Christ had been kept secret, but now had been revealed. Now to him is able to, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. However, believing to have a divine message does not make it so. What evidence do we have? of this message having been sent from God to Paul. Paul received direct revelation from the Lord. The Bible teaches that Paul received direct revelation from God. Paul wrote, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 1 Corinthians 9.1 After an encounter with the ascended Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul had it explained by Ananias. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And then Paul goes on, when it comes to disobeying his writings, Paul said that anyone who disobeyed his writings was to be disciplined by the local church. Mm -hmm. He wrote, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 To the Corinthians he wrote, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier on any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. And then it repeats again, the 1 Corinthians 14, 37-38, when he said, if you ignore his writings, you're ignoring Christ. His writings were considered scripture during his time. We already covered that with what Peter wrote. 
So the the question of did Peter know whether or not what he was writing was scripture, it really doesn't matter because Paul did know that what he was writing was in the authority and from the authority given him by Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. So my question is, either all of Paul's writings are scripture and are from Jesus Christ and are to be obeyed from Jesus Christ, or none of them are. Mm -hmm. We have no authority to pick and choose what we will and what we will not obey when it comes from the Word of God. Now, I've seen others come back and try to use the defense that, well, this is like eating meat. We can can do this and do that according to our conscience. In certain measures, yes, and in certain areas, yes. But when it comes to what Christ has commanded, we have no liberty to disobey Christ. Mm -hmm. The liberty we have in Christ is to live in Christ, not to live outside of Christ or to live like the world. And when these pragmatic, emotional-driven pastors and churches are trying to label anything from the Word of God as less important than another portion of Scripture, they're not only twisting Scripture, they're trying to, to twist the authority God has given to those that wrote each one of the books in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Amen. What are your thoughts, brother? I just, I think you're absolutely on track. You know, the, the, the simple truth of the matter is, and you go back to the Ligonier article, what is the source of our sound doctrine? It's scripture. Sound doctrine is what we are commanded to believe and practice. If you want to be able to say, well, and we'll pick on the women pastors role because number one, it's one of the big topics right now, but number two, it's the one that Rick Warren was, you know, more or less not defending himself about while he was defending himself. Um, when you have scripture that clearly outlines it and you try to take scripture and, and have it fight itself, and it says here, I do not permit a woman woman to teach or hold authority over a man and then you go well but here this person and and here this woman did and here you know this person said you're trying to take an explicit passage which clearly states what the command of god is and you're trying to mitigate it by all these oftentimes they are descriptive events not prescriptive meaning that these are what we're told to do but rather descriptive events and you're trying to make it combat itself so rich so let me just start with saying you're absolutely right because they're trying to find ways to play origami with the word of god and and we can't do that right well absolutely and actually when they say that this portion of scripture is less important or we don't have to obey this portion of scripture they're actually agreeing with the argument that atheists give to those Mm -hmm. who are engaged in evangelism because they say, well, that was just written by man. It has no authority. God doesn't exist. Or the, or the, um, some of the cults like the Jehovah's witnesses or some of the others, they're actually defending the stance Mm -hmm. of those that attack the Bible. When these pastors themselves are trying to say, well, this portion of scripture doesn't matter because it was just written by Paul. They are actually agreeing with atheists and those who attack Christianity by demeaning the 
authority of Scripture, but yet they try to stand on other portions of Scripture written by the exact same man, if that makes any sense. It, it, it Absolutely. And it goes back to what we were saying before. You have this dedication, this presupposition about this particular thing that you want to do, and so now you're trying to take Scripture and say, well, in this case we can believe it, this place we don't have to, this place we can we can water it down and say it was cultural. Over here we can say, well, this is authoritative. And it's because you're what you're admitting is you don't believe you don't believe your that scripture is sufficient. You don't believe it's inspired, inerrant, you don't believe it is uh, infallible. You believe that it's it's a guidebook that you can work by. You'll have your file cabinet theology, but um, you're not practicing what, what Scripture says. And the sad part about that is what then happens is once you have established that you're not going to adhere to Scripture, it is not sufficient for your practice, then what happens is you have pastors, and this goes back to what Alan Nelson said, you have faithful pastors who say, um, point of order, Scripture says you can't do that. Scripture says we're supposed to do this. And the inevitable claim, and it comes in many forms, boils down to you're being, you're being legalistic. Not everybody sees that the way you do, so quit trying to force people to this. You're you're being legalistic. You're imposing your own standards. You're you're saying if we don't do it your way, that we're not Christians. And again, that goes right back to even Gavin Ortland had said, you you've reduced scripture, a good portion of scripture, except for this tiny little dot that you say is essential, to non-essential and therefore irrelevant. And if it's irrelevant, then it doesn't matter. And if you try to hold me to it, I'm going to call you a name. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, make you this terrible legalistic person. And I'm going to tell people not to play with you anymore because you're mean. And it's, it's really what we saw happen uh, in the build-up to the SBC annual meeting, and what happened after uh, the the the, out, uh, the the outpouring of people who think, oh, thank goodness, we fended off those terrible really hard right-wing legalistic, uh, you know, their way only um, people like Tom Askell and Founders and, and, uh, and, and Conservative Baptist Network and all that stuff. It is, it is an attempt to misconstrue what Scripture really is, what sound doctrine is, turn it into this kind of nebulous massive goo that you can kind of just push into little piles to get it out of the way so you can get to the thing that you want. And then when somebody comes in and says, no, there's structure here, there's there's definition, there's there's stuff that we build upon, and this is how we go and grow, and this is how the, script, the scriptures tell us to live and worship, that person becomes an obstacle to your agenda. And so you you throw out the legalism card. You say you're you're a terrible person because you're a legalist, and the or set, fundamentalist or a fundamentalist. Which I've never understood why fundamentalist is considered such a a, a coarse and crass term, uh, because what it really means is I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. 
a fundamentalist. Actually, well, I was just going to say there, there is a fundamentalist in terms of say like an you know evangelical versus fundamentalism. But the point is is that you you believe that Scripture informs what you believe and practice and do. And the fundamentalists they might be a bit more firm in some areas than say maybe you or I, Rich, and and they might even have some legalistic tendencies. But they do so because they believe that the scriptures inform everything that they're supposed to do, and it's it is such gonna, a terrible. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that that demeaning word, the way they try to use it, mm-hmm. well, you're just a fun, one of those mean fundamentalists. That actually originated back like in the 30s and 40s when the feminist movement started, yeah. and churches were trying to stand on the biblical word of God. And those, quote-unquote, mean biblical Christians who stood on the Word of God saying, no, we can't be doing this, this, or this, it's going to lead to other things that which they were right, we actually see today. Mm-hmm. That term, they flipped it around and started using it in a derogatory manner back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s against some of the well-known pastors of that day, R.A. Torrey being one of them, uh, and I know a lot of people may have an issue with him, but in, in his day, he was labeled a fundamentalist because he actually believed the Bible, mm-hmm. and he actually believed we should do what the Bible tells us to do. But that, I just wanted to kind of throw that in, that that's actually one of the origins behind that derogatory term, or what they try to mean it as a derogatory term today, when they start calling people a fundamentalist. Yeah. Um, they got, at one point, it was good to be considered a fundamentalist. That was that era's version of what we call biblical Christianity today. Yeah. Um, but they, they try to equate being a fundamentalist with being a legalist or being legalistic. Exactly. And that's really the, the sad truth of the matter is that they want to turn it into a derogatory term so that they don't actually have to defend their position. Because once you try to defend what you're doing, you have to appeal to something that's authoritative. And when you're appealing to pragmatism, you don't have anything authoritative. You have your own opinions. You have your own... Or, or you, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, the only thing they have to appeal to is their results saying, well, yes. we baptized 50,000 people, so what we're doing must be biblical. Well, you can get 200,000 people to attend a rock concert, but that don't mean it's a biblical rock concert. Well, and that's the thing. It was, you know, it, um, Ray Comfort in uh, uh, Hell's Best Kept Secret, great message. Go to livingwaters.com, go listen to it. It talks about biblical evangelism, the use of the law and evangelism. But he talks about numbers. And, oh, look how many decisions we made. How many actually stayed with it? Very, very small. Very small amount. And so, yeah, you appeal to numbers, but numbers don't mean anything. Oh, they keep showing up. Yeah, but how many are walking in holiness? How many are rocking in righteousness? How many are, are standing firm against the world? How many are compromises? How many are falling away? How many are filling in to, 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 uh, for the ones that fall away? That's, that's not a standard. None of that holds up in, under examination. But it's, it's, what's tri- it's what's touted out and, and brought out and said, well, see, it, it works. Until you look more deeply and you look at, you know, you do things like Ligonier's, you know, a state of theology surveys that they put out every two years and how horrible the theological understandings of most professing Christians are, how out of completely out of touch with biblical truth they really are. 
once you try to stand and say, well, we can compromise because blank, you don't have anything. You, you, it, it's opinion, it's numbers, it's worldly uh, classifications. And so you go, oh, you're being legalistic because I bring scripture and I say, scripture is pretty clear here. Here's what it says. Here's how we know what he's talking about. And by the way, this isn't cultural. He peels back to, you know, the creation order. Or here's what he's talking about. You know, you know, if uh, those may profess faith, but they didn't walk in faith and therefore he doesn't know them. Oh, and here, look here. It says if you do this or you do that, if you're practicing this, you're not, you're not of Christ. Oh, you're being a legalist. It's, it's a throwaway card. It's a way to get you to not hold to Scripture. And so hopefully if we've done anything in this episode, it's getting you to understand when someone uses the throwout phrase, oh, that's a secondary issue. What they're really saying is shut up. I don't want to hear it. Because there's something else that they want to go to. In Rick Warren's case, it's look how many churches we've planted. Look how many people we baptized. Look how much of this ministry or that ministry or how many people I trained or whatever. He's appealed to results. He's not appealing to scripture. He wants you to see, oh, look at all the leaves in my tree. Don't, don't ignore the fact there's zero fruit. Look at the leaves on the tree. The fruit what we what we're looking for can only be examined one way and that's by the word of god so when we're looking for doctrinal issues we we can use classification terms and i really think we need to start coming up with some better terms because primary secondary etc has been used and abused by people that want pragmatism to reign so they can get results but whether you call it primary, secondary, whatever, or you call it something else, there are no unimportant doctrines in Scripture. There is nothing someone gets to tell you, well, that's not important, so let's not talk about it. These are extremely important. Why? Because God has said so. God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the human authors whom he called and equipped, penned 66 books of scripture. And every last one from the first page of Genesis to the end of Revelation is the word of God revealed to us. That's his revelation to us about him. It's who he is, what he came for, what he did, what he's doing in us, what he's doing through us, what he's called us to do so that he can be glorified. There are no unimportant doctrines of Scripture. We may find ourselves in places where we can still be in fellowship with people that we disagree with. Okay, It might be issues of baptism. It might be end times theology. It might be, um, as, as Rich, as you point out, the, the structure of church government. We might find ourselves in a variety of places where we are brethren in Christ and yet can work arm in arm for the glory of God. Because we still, we're human beings. We don't have the full, complete understanding of Scripture that we need, which is why we must study the Word of God every single day, by the way. One day we will understand it because we will be in glory and we will be with our Savior and we will be able to, all of this is going to be made understandable to us. And so we're all going to go, oh, I had that wrong. 
But in the meantime, we need to study, strive to understand, strive to practice, and be wrangling through these issues with one another. But what we absolutely do not have the freedom to do is say that's not important, so therefore be quiet about it, and we don't even have to practice it. We don't even have to strive to do this right because we can disagree. We have no freedom to do that. None at all. And if anybody says, well, you don't have to do blank because people disagree with it, or we can are free to do blank because people disagree with it, be warned. Be very, very warned because you're being set up. When someone says, are we going to keep bickering about secondary issues? Your answer is absolutely. Because every one of us needs to rightly understand the word of truth. And every one of us needs to have, we're in a constant state of reformation and repentance. We're always going to be wrong about something. We're always going to be striving to learn more. And we're always going to be striving to reform and grow. And if you're not doing that, then if you're saying, no, my practice is just fine and you need to be quiet because it's a secondary issue, you're about to be played. And you guys need to be really careful with people who do that. Because in that particular instance, those are situations where a lot of times there's someone who's basically saying, shut up, I don't want you to challenge me with the Bible on this. I like this, and I'm going to do this, and you need to uh, just live with the fact that we're going to disagree. There may be places, look, Presbyterians and Baptists are not going to agree on baptism. It's gonna, There's going to be arguments aplenty, okay? And, but... The issue is we're arguing through it. We're trying to find the, the right answer and we're debating back and forth and we're going, you know what? Hey, each one is trying to rightly understand the word of truth here and we're moving forward. Great. But when someone says, don't you tell me I have to be baptized? That's not what saves me. That's not salvific. It's a, it's a secondary issue. Be quiet. Now you got a problem. You don't need to, to talk, tell, talk to me about whether women can be pastors. That's a secondary issue. Be quiet. You you can't you can't tell me how we're supposed to do worship. We can. It doesn't say thou shall not use ACDC. You're, that's a secondary issue. Be quiet. Stay away from that. Stay away from uh, from that kind of argument. You're about to be abused, and, and that's that's what's going on there. So, Rich, uh, any any last thoughts before we cut everybody loose tonight? Well, just like you were pointing out, and and the Bible clearly talks about. People will be given over to delusion in the last days and twist and, and pervert Scripture to their own demise, and that's what we're seeing. Men like Rick Warren that twist Scripture for their own agenda are peddlers of the gospel. They're not true representatives. They're not true ambassadors of Christ because they actually are denying what Christ has plainly written in black and white in the book. And granted, there are some verses that could be hard to understand, especially when you're dealing with prophecy and like the book of Revelation and some other issues. But when it comes to the issue of women preaching, it's clearly written in black and white. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. There really shouldn't be any debate when it comes to that, not when it's that clearly and plainly stated and it cannot be denied the only way that you can deny it and skirt it is to do like we've talked about this entire show. You make it less important than other mm -hmm. portions of Scripture, and we are not God. We don't have the authority to pick and choose what we will and will not obey when it comes from the Word of God and when it comes from Jesus Christ himself. Amen. But I hope this encourages our listeners to 
take some of these issues and not respond in an emotional state, not respond with worldly rhetoric, not respond with opinions. But when you're dealing with these issues, go to scripture and point out what scripture actually states, because they may try to make excuses, but ultimately, if you quote what scripture says on these issues, they can only thing they can do is either repent of their disobedience or stay in their disobedience. But when we plainly show what the word of God says to those who profess to be Christians, now quoting scripture to someone outside of Christ, that's a different issue because they don't understand because the veil of Moses is still over their face anyway. But sadly, most of those who profess Christ are still wearing that veil of Moses over their face. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you really need to go read your Bible. But respond with Scripture. Show them from Scripture what Scripture actually says because the Word of God never returns void. They may deny it. They may try to make excuses for it. But ultimately, when they die and stand before God, they will give an account of their life. And for some men that are in leadership within certain denominations, I just have one reminder for you. The Bible clearly states for him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is a sin. If you're trying to make excuses, if you're trying to cover up sin, of one man and tear down another person, you're in sin because you know you're not doing the right thing, but you're still covering it up. You're in sin. You need to repent. And when it comes to Rick Warren, it's he's about 20 years past having been disaffellowshipped from the SBC. But sadly, because of the amount of money Saddleback donates to the platform, he will never be kicked out of the mm-hmm. SBC. Exactly. Maybe yeah. in ten years, once once his successors go full blown heresy and start openly supporting homosexuality, which will be the next step. Mark my word. I'm not a prophet. I've just watched and observed a lot in the last twelve years. That will be the next step in this de-evolution of the Word of God in this post-moral society, even among the church. The next step, you will start to see churches like Saddleback become more and more open to same-sex attracted individuals. We've already experienced some of that with J.D. Greer, Ed Litton, and some of these others. But in closing, I would like to encourage each of you, whatever you do this week, make it a point to proclaim the biblical way of salvation at least once a day. Amen. Amen. Folks, our our great hope in so many of these episodes has been not to so much use what's going on as, hey, look, here's the newest and uh, most juiciest topic to get everybody's uh, blood pumping, but rather to help you as you see these things unfold. How do I respond? How do I recognize what's being said, and then what do I do in response? And hopefully that's something we can continue to do with this program is to help you see as you encounter these, you know, these issues in evangelicalism, in the world around you, in political life, whatever it is you're facing, you can recognize how people are seeking to 
manipulate the word of God, manipulate you, or or present bad arguments, and how you can respond to them in a biblical manner so that, not so you can win an argument, but so that you can glorify God by doing what he has called you to do, to worship him rightly, to live according to his word, to proclaim the gospel, and you can point people back to Christ. That's what our hope and goal for this show and what we put on the website and the articles we put out is that ultimately you are seeking to glorify God. So it's easy to, to pick you know the, the, the outrage du jour. We, we talked about abortion because that's the big topic issue. We talked about the SBC because that's a big topic issue. But what are we hopefully trying to accomplish? Is it to just dr- get more listeners because we're picking those topics? No. We're hoping to get you to think biblically. It's always been our stated goal is to get you to think through the one true voice of reason, the Word of God, that that's your lens to view all of life, that you are looking through things with a scriptural perspective. So when people try to tell you, well, that's a secondary issue, don't, look, we don't have to go to a fisk, into fisticuffs about it. Let's not be jerks for Jesus. We've said that before. But be willing to stand firm on the Word of God and don't let, don't let someone manipulate you into believing well, I don't have to be worried about it. It's a secondary issue. There may be places you're going to agree to disagree. But why did you do that? And are you still able to uphold the word of God as true? Or did you acquiesce for sake of relationship, for sake of uh, you know, not appearing to be confrontational? Are you, are you allowing compromise to come into your life and into the church for the sake of, well, it's a secondary issue. If that's happening, we hope we've uh, caused you some pause and are giving you reasons to rethink how you're approaching that. Don't have to agree with us on all these issues. We've said this before, but if you're gonna disagree, make sure you're doing so in in context with scripture. That's our whole goal. So thank you for being with us. And as Rich said, make it a point this week to spend time sharing the gospel somehow. Find a person to online, in person, gospel tract, whatever. Find a way to do it because that's the only thing that's going to ultimately change hearts and minds and it's the power of God. It's the power of God into salvation, the gospel message itself. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for continuing to be part of Voice of Reason Radio. Thank you for the fact that you're sharing it and, and putting it out there uh, because we're noticing there, there, there seem to be a few more of you. And we're just humbled by that. So thank you so much uh, for being a part of this program. Thank you so much for praying for us. Please, please be praying for us. Pray that God would keep us humble. God would continue to push us to serve him in all ways that we uh, have been called to serve him in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, not just in this podcast, that we would continue to serve him the way we've uh, been called to. And uh, pray for the future of this program, that whatever God has in mind, that we would be obedient to him to do, uh, because we just want to make sure we're glorifying his name. So if you want to help us, that's a way to do it right there. Just be praying for us. And if you want to share this with other people, slavetothekingcom and, and, and there's all kinds of ways that you can support that as well. So thank you for being a part of it. We're grateful to have you guys. We will talk to you next week. God bless. Good night. And whatever you do this week, do it for the glory of God.